Welcome brothers and sisters to another round of uh, podcast by St. Peter Institute of Scripture and Evangelization where we defend the Catholic faith in truth and charity. My name is Royston Peter and once again I have my brother Marcus Peter. Hello Marcus. Hey Roy, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me on the podcast once again. It's wonderful. Um, so this round of podcast we actually have uh, youth series and what it means by that is we have sent out our um, forms of asking youths and um, school students or um, any teenager for that matter to send in their questions of what they think the Catholic faith is about and what they want to know about the Catholic faith and boy they sent really amazing questions and you guys will see why later that we are in shock I mean the questions that they send will put some of us adults to shame. That's actually true, yeah. Well, so before we begin, Marcus, would you like to lead us in an opening prayer? Absolutely. In nomine Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus tecum, benedicta tu in mulieribus, et benedictus fructus ventris tui, Jesus. Sancta Maria Mater Dei, ora pro nobis peccatoribus nunc, et in hora mortis nostre. Amen. And this being the month of the Sacred Heart, Coriesus Sanctissime Miserere Nobis. In nomine Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Amen. So um, thank you for joining me once again, Marcus. And to all of you listening, stay tuned. It's going to be an amazing session. So let's jump into it. Our first question. Um, sorry, before I begin, to protect the identity of these youths, and teenagers we are not going to mention their names now nor their location but we are just going to give you the question that they have asked so the first question does the does the christian faith clash with science can science ever prove that the bible or the or church teachings is false has it already done so Okay, that's a loaded question. There, there are quite a lot of things to unpack there. So, so you know, let, let, let's dive right into that. Let, let, let's talk about uh, what that possibly means. Does the Christian faith clash with science? The answer is no. The answer is a very clear, absolute no. Uh, then that begs the next question, which is, uh, what was it again? Can science ever prove that the Bible or church teaching is false, right? So, yep. you know, let, let's talk about the Christian faith in general. During his papacy, Pope John Paul the Great, Pope John Paul II, he wrote a number of documents addressing specifically this. Uh, two that come to mind are Fides et Ratio, which means faith and reason. And uh, the other one is the Splendor of Truth, Veritatis Splendor. And, you know, each of these documents have their own specific leans when it comes to talking about the Catholic faith. Nonetheless, both of them address the reality of faith and reason, faith and the heart sciences, and so on and so forth. But in order to jump right into this, I want to start by challenging the way we view the world. See, Roy, you and I were brought up in an Asian empiricist mindset, and the Asian mindset is influenced by people like John Locke, who is a British empiricist. Well, empiricism means that we view the world through that which is material, that which is tangible and physical. Now, you know, that makes sense to people like us who are brought up with that, but we need to dial a step back there because empiricism is an extremely limited way of viewing creation, extremely. And I'll prove to you why. 
Right now, astrophysics is able to calculate the boundaries of the universe, the, the borders of the universe. And they can argue that based on these calculations of what's known as redshift, which is the position of stars that are specifically at a certain point and after about anywhere from 10 days to 10 years, their position shifts ever so slightly. And that slight shifting is called redshift. They're able to calculate that the universe is in a continual st state of expansion. What they're unable to tell you is what's outside of the bounds of the universe because it's pure nothingness we we have no concept of it empiricism can only measure that which is material it cannot it it cannot uh, seek to comprehend that which is immaterial now you know that that's on a macrophysics scale right let's go down to to you know just the individual scale quantify a thought. Biology, chemistry, and physics will never be able to tell you what a thought is. The closest neurobiology can come is to argue that a thought is an electrical impulse in the neurons of the brain, which is fantastic. You know, okay, thank you. Fantastic. Thank you for that answer. What it doesn't explain is why a specific neuron with a specific electrical charge and impulse can produce this thought for one person, but this thought for a different person. See, quantifying a thought is a near impossibility from the lens of the empirical sciences. Uh, over and above that, uh, the, the concept of consciousness, the concept of consciousness, science cannot seek to understand it. What makes us conscious beings and what makes uh, animals unconscious beings, as in they don't have a revelation of the self and a capacity of communicating that. Now, some might argue, no, a dog understands when a dog's a dog. Well, yes, yes, to a degree. And there's a certain preservation of species, but there's no real understanding of the self, the limitation of self and the moral implications of that. That's why when, uh, that's why when a dog say does something wrong, you condition it, you know, you, you punish it. And, you know, some people probably spoil their pets more than necessary, which is terrible. But um, besides the point, uh, you, you condition the dog to behave a certain way. Why? Because a dog is a pet. An animal is, is it, it, there's a master servant relationship. You know, what's different? You and I don't actually adopt the animal. There's no covenant relationship between us and the animal. And when that animal dies, it is not in the same gravitas as the death of a human being. Now, I tell you all of this because it proves that the empirical sciences have limitations in terms of viewing all of life. This is why be, long before empiricism came about, there was a better way to view all of creation, which is firstly through the lens of the creator himself who has revealed himself. And the name of that lens is theology. Right under theology, even if you don't want to take the revelation of the, of the creator, you've got the natural sciences that help man contemplate the immaterial things. There's a name for that, philosophy. The highest of that is metaphysics. And, you know, we don't have to go into a, a grand scheme of what metaphysics is. Uh, we can do that on another episode one day. And immediately below that, you've got the liberal arts, you know, the, the language arts, the music arts, all of these things that some people say are subjective and, and abstract and therefore lower. Actually, no, the lowest of the sciences are the empirical sciences. That which you and I can view under a microscope is lower in authority than the theoretical sciences. And I'll prove this to you. This is why when you go to places like California Tech, you take natural physics, you take actual empirical physics long before you take theoretical physics. And theoretical physics doesn't deal with the physical qua physical. You start dealing with abstract concepts. Do atoms move in a wave? Do atoms move in a string? And, you know, string theory, wave, uh, waveform theory, 
And then quantum physics is by itself a certain area of abstract physics. And it's one of my favorite areas, quantum mechanics. Uh, the, the waveform theory as it manifests with quarks, with, uh, with all subatomic particles, all of these things move into the theoretical and these are naturally higher than the physical. Now I tell you all of this because to answer this very clear question, the Christian faith does not clash with science when you use the Christian faith to view science. The Christian faith can never clash with science because God created the sciences. The problem, however, is that there are scientists out there who are attempting to use science, this lower thing, to disprove the Christian faith, which is this higher thing. That's the problem. See, within the lens of theology, I can engage in biology, and I can tell you that life begins at the moment of conception, and any good scientist will tell you that. You know, the, uh, we have evidence that states a baby's heartbeat begins anywhere from 16 to 22 days, but it's first detected by an ultrasound at, say, four weeks. We have evidence that proves that from the moment of conception, that there is actually this burst of light at, at the moment of conception. And from that point on, this thing has its own chromosomal set, and it is destined to become its own human being. It is a separate body unto itself that is deriving nutrition and is dependent upon the mother for its well-being for nine months. Any good scientist will tell you that. What's, what's the problem with the world right now? Well, in the, in the name of uh, freedom of choice, in the name of, you know, get out of my uterus or whatever the heck, uh, what's happening is scientists are fudging the data, which is entirely possible. I'll prove to you another example, you know, this COVID-19 situation. Uh, when COVID-19 first came out, they, they, they started telling us, you know, all the scientific data is stating that we have to be at least six feet, up, six feet apart. And the whole world did it. You know, uh, the British Empire did two meters and we did six feet over here. Well, in May of this year, I don't remember the date exactly, but in May of this year, a, a study was conducted over the entire course since COVID happened until May that was published in the Journal of Clinical Infectious Diseases, and it proved with certitude six feet, three feet, or zero feet makes no difference. So it is entirely possible to get the data wrong. So now I tell you all of this because, well, actually not zero feet, they're saying between six feet and three feet, there's no difference. Now, the, the, I tell you all of this because we need to understand that the lower sciences, the empirical sciences, have been repudiated across the centuries. Less than 100 years ago, doctors were saying arsenic is a good thing. Doctors were saying cocaine in certain foods were a good thing. Uh, do you remember gripe water, this thing that we were growing up and, you know, like when moms wanted their babies to have a better night's sleep, they'd give them gripe water. Well, we found out that it had an addictive quality and it was close to a narcotic and they pulled it off the shelves. But when we were growing up, it was like, oh, give babies this, you know? So the, the, the science, the empirical science is subject to change. But only when it is viewed through the lens of the authority of theology does it have its fullest meaning. So it's not so much whether the Christian faith clashes with science. is It's a question of, have we subordinated our science to the lens of the creator? Because once you answer that question, you come up with the next question, which is this. The Christian faith has always said, you know, Veritatis Splendor and, uh, you know, John Paul II, some of his letters that he wrote to particular uh, influential people. And plus, you know, you take a look at Dei Filios, you take a look at Fides et Ratio. All of them state that the scientific process is utilized for the purpose of the pursuit of truth. And this is a good and noble thing. So from there, to answer the next question, you know, can science prove the Bible or the church teaching is false? The answer is an absolute no. 
And I tried, you know, in my atheist days, I tried, I really did try. No, the answer is an absolute no, because science can only determine that which is material. The premise of science is we examine that which is material and we negate that which is immaterial. God is by nature Im- God is by nature immaterial. And because he is immaterial, we cannot in honesty uh, use science to view him. But that's the other problem, right? There's a part of us that's immaterial. You know, Roy, like your desire to read something and you know once you've read that thing you're done with it but you want to seek more knowledge on the catholic faith for example and you you pursue it more and you pursue it more and this has been going on for years and it's still not stopped that's an immaterial desire science cannot constitute it science cannot explain it you know so even our appetites within us are immaterial that's why science can never prove the bible or church teaching as false because it cannot disprove the immaterial so has it already done so no absolutely not Thank you um, for uh, submitting in that question. Thank you, Marcus. Um, well, we move on to our next question. Many people believe that all religions are equally valid. Can a, can a Catholic hold that point of view? No, absolutely not. <laughs> and, and, you know, we could just end the podcast right here. No, absolutely not. Uh, the question answers itself. <laughs> the question answers itself. It really does. Uh, no, no, we absolutely cannot. And this is why in my atheistic years and when I first came into Christianity again, I looked up all of the major religions. It was it was really a series of intellectual conclusions. You know, I realized that if God is real, he had to reveal himself in as uh, widespread a way as possible. And he had to make his revelation as available as possible. So I looked up the major religions. The problem is you take a look at Siddhartha Gautama, uh, who is, you know, the founder, founder of Buddhism. And he says that, this is the way, you know, like the, the medium way, but he never said I am the way, you know, he, he posited an, 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 a path to what he called enlightenment, which is the breaking of the incarnation cycle. But he never once posited that he is the way, you know, uh, he, in fact, the way is to relinquish yourself of all desire, which is an impossible possible reality because when you desire to relinquish all desire you're desiring something you know that that, that that's the incongruence of, of the thought but you know towards his deathbed even he uh, there are texts that that say that that Siddhartha Gautama said there will be a greater teacher than I who will come and take that with a grain of salt if you will you take a look at Hinduism Hinduism is the one that's easiest to debunk because any good Hindu scholar will tell you that Hindu idols were invented by the people who worship these idols at specific times for specific purposes so you know like this village will invent an idol for the harvest and that village will invent a different idol for the harvest this village had a lot of single men who weren't getting married so they invented a, a, an idol for bachelors you know and so on and so forth well, this kind of human subjective invention that is so widespread and then eventually came together to form a cult of worship and sacrifice is not reasonable in, in its right frame of mind. It, it, it admits to its own invention. You take a look at Islam. Now, there, there are a number of issues when it comes to Islam, but the prime issue is that when you read the Quran, you'll notice that very clearly Jesus Christ is, well, Jesus as Nabi Isa is mentioned more in the Quran than, than Muhammad himself is. And at the end of time, it will be Nabi Isa. It'll be Jesus who comes to judge all mankind and who will return. And then you take a look at Jesus Christ and the claims he made. 
And you suddenly realize that we have historical evidence that are extra biblical, you know, the writings of Flavius Josephus, the writings of uh, Philo of Alexandria, the writings of uh, Tacitus of Rome. All of these people are historians. They have no desire to back the Christian claim. Yet we see very, very clearly that what these individuals do is they evince that which Jesus did. And you take a look at Jesus's claim. So C.S. Lewis does this in uh, Mere Christianity. He says, he calls it the, the liar lunatic Lord challenge. You know that sentence where Jesus says, I am in the gospel of John, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the father except through me. You and I have heard this verse, and you know, a lot of Christians have heard this verse so many times that they don't stop to think about it. But we need to realize this. When someone makes that statement, it is such an exclusive statement that it warrants investigation. Because either the person is lying about the fact that no one comes to God except through them, or they're entirely out of their mind because God is so beyond man, so transcendent from man that it's impossible to get to God through this one limited person, or he really is who he claims he is. So C.S. Lewis then undergoes an uh, intellectual examination of the statement. And the truth is, was Jesus a liar? Well, no, because everything he said he was going to do, he did. And he's the only man historically, and this is a matter of historical fact, to have raised himself from the dead. Every theory that debunks the resurrection is itself debunked. Every single theory. So we know the resurrection is a matter of historical fact the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So he couldn't be a liar. Was he a lunatic? Well, if he was a lunatic, it was, if he was really you know, mentally beside himself, then nothing he said would have been coherent. And yet, time and time again, when confronted by the Pharisees, he presents the most cogent, the most coherent, the most well-thought-out, authoritative, intellectual answer possible to completely debunk it. Which only leaves one thing. Is he Lord? Yes, now, some people have, have attempted to add a fourth L. Is he a legend? Did he really exist? Yes. We have more historical evidence for the person of Jesus Christ that is extra biblical than we have for people like Julius Caesar or uh, Charlemagne or uh, Anthony, uh, Anthony, who is uh, uh, Julius Caesar's friend or Brutus. And yet we know these people existed. So, no, we have more textual evidence for the person of Jesus. So lastly, he is Lord. Now, that simply means this. For all those people who says, you know, but I think all religions are kind of equal. It's arrogant to say one religion is better than the others. Okay, fine. If you say that all religions are true, then when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, you are admitting that is true. They would be forced to say yes. Because then you have to negate every other religion. And then you take a look at the lives of the Christians after that. You know, one of the proofs of the resurrection that we see in St. Athanasius' On the Incarnation is that Christians run into martyrdom. No one runs into death for a lie. They've seen the proof of the resurrection. They know that this earthly life means nothing in light of heavenly life. They run into martyrdom because they know that Jesus Christ is truly Lord. So you take a look at, you know, the writings of people like St. Irenaeus, St. Cyprian, St. Fulgentius, uh, Fulgentius of Ruspe, you know, he's one of the church fathers that we hardly ever hear. And even, you know, the, the medievals like St. Thomas Aquinas, they all make very clear this claim of extra ecclesiam nulla salus. Outside of the Catholic faith, there's no salvation is an absolute truth. Because Jesus Christ made one way to the Father. He is the way to the Father. And he institutes that way by means of the enactment of the liturgy and the sacraments. So, you know, cutting a very long answer short, 
The answer is no, all religions are not equal. And you know that horrible homily that I heard when I was young and you were there at that mass too. You know, all religions are climbing the same mountain from different sides and they'll all reach the top at the same time. Well, unfortunately, no, actually fortunately and thankfully, it's a load of junk. It's a complete load of junk. So how do we relate with other religions? Well, Lumen Gentium and Nostra Aetate teaches us that, these are both uh, Vatican II documents, by the way. Uh, they teach us that when you take a look at other religions, there are some things that are true about them because they have borrowed these things from the Christian revelation. And we can use those as starting points for conversation and evangelization. But to admit that those relig religions are absolutely true is a flat out lie. Jesus Christ is the way to the Father. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus Christ. Yeah. Um, it, well, I mean, if, just like you mentioned, if you see the life of the apostles, of the saints, if Jesus was truly not who he said he was, they wouldn't have given up their life for a lunatic or a liar. Precisely. Precisely. Absolutely. Especially, yeah, especially if you consider, um, what, 11 of the 12 apostles died by martyrdom. Mm -hmm. You know, th they saw everything firsthand. If it was a lie, I mean, you and I have seen government officials who try to lie through things, and within a month or two, the lies, you know, just blow out and everyone finds out the truth. You know, there's a scandal in, in America here called Watergate and involved uh, some of the top men in the U.S. government, and they, they weren't able to hold a lie for 30 days. These apostles held on to these truths for years until their death. Yeah. All right. So let's move on to our next question. And this is going to be a bit interesting. Christian teaching seems to assume that the universe was created by God for man and that Jesus's redemptive work was a special act for the benefit of man. Does this mean that man is alone in the universe? Pope Francis once said, that he would have no qualms about baptizing aliens. And this was a statement made in May 2013. But wouldn't the appearance of aliens prove that man is not special in the universe and therefore that Christian teaching is wrong? Did Jesus shed his precious blood for aliens too? Are aliens also subject to original sin? Or was the corruption of original sin limited, limited to our globe? And if the answer is, well, there's no proof that alien exists, doesn't that mean that the first evidence of other intelligent life in the universe, evidence that uh, could come in our lifetimes, will that mean that we have to fundamentally rethink our Christian faith? It's pretty long, but it's kind of interesting. Yeah, it is. It is. Huh. Okay, so, you know, my background is in the hard sciences, right? And I had a deep love of biology. Um, back... Back when I was, you know, going through my atheistic days, there was an equation called the Drake equation that was uh, coming out of, you know, some universities in America. The name of the scientist who developed it is something Drake, Professor Drake. And the, the equation simply states this, that when you take the number of civilizations in which humans could communicate, uh, you know, uh, multiplied by the mean rate of star formations, multiplied by the fraction of stars that have planets, uh, the, the mean number of planets that's could support life per star with planets and the fraction of life supporting planets that develop life. And then the fractions of planets with life where life develops into intelligence, the fraction of that intelligent life developing capacity for communication and the mean length of time that that civilization develops its capacity to communicate interplanetarily. 
the equation basically works out that it's a mathematical impossibility for alien life to exist in the universe. Now, you know, some people might argue, well, you don't know everything. Well, yes, no, we don't know everything. But when something is a statistical and mathematical impossibility, and I'm not talking about an improbability, uh, when, when it comes to the point where it's a mathematical impossibility held by over 90% of serious scientists in the world, I am inclined to believe that there's some truth to the fact that aliens do not exist. And I, I believe this long before I, I, I'd give them my, my life to the Christian faith. You know, like in, in all honesty, we can keep searching, but there's a reason why the world isn't devoting its primary resources to hunting for alien life forms. It's one of those things that sells National Geographic episodes and Discovery Channel episodes, but it's going to do very little for the future of man as we know it. So no, the Star Trek, the next frontier, you know, to go where no man has ever gone before and all that. Well, it's not going to happen. And much as I like Star Wars, I'm sorry, I'm never going to meet a Wookiee. You know, it would be nice if I could meet one and go, but you know, the, the truth is I'm never going to meet a Wookiee. And, 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 you know, that's fine. You know, and Yoda's never going to look at me and go, mm, strong as the force he is, you know, but, 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 and then that's fine. Sorry. Sorry. You can tell I've spent a lot of time thinking about this question uh, long before you asked me this today. No, the evidence of, uh, for there to be alien life forms is actually insufficient. Okay, but fine. But fine. Uh, let's humor the question. The question says, well, you know, what if we suddenly find that alien life forms exist? My question is then going to be, okay, so what? Because the truths of revelation are not affected by intelligent alien life forms for this one reason. Whether there's an intelligent alien life or not, if there is intelligence and a capacity for intelligent communication, then it is safe to assume that that being has some kind of image of God in them. Without it, it is impossible to have rational communication as, as a means of, of functioning. That's why human beings have the image of God, angels have the image of God, and therefore fallen angels have the image of God. Father Dwight Longenecker, who is, you know, he's a world-renowned uh, exorcist and theologian, very solid man, very, very solid man. And he says very clearly that demons actually do possess the capacity to assume ethereal forms. So that is one explanation for, uh, you know, uh, these, these alien appearances and sightings and whatnot. Why? Because demons will do everything they can to debunk and shake a person's faith in the Lord God, especially through the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, now, that's one way of looking at it. The other way, the other way that we should look at it is this. Whether or not aliens exist, mankind ho holds a special position in salvation history. And that the fall of Adam and Eve affected all of material creation in a certain way. If there are intelligent aliens out there, that's why, you know, if Pope Francis makes such a frivolous statement without thinking, I need to verify that statement. I, I hadn't heard that he had said that. But, you know, if he makes such a frivolous statement like that, it is because in some way, shape or form, these aliens would have been affected by the fall of Adam and Eve because they were made Lord over material creation. It doesn't debunk Christianity. If anything, it just further serves to prove the majesty of the God who created beyond the comprehension of man. Now, I will tell you this. There's no mathematical, scientific, genuine reason for us to actually believe that E.T. is going to show up tomorrow going, E.T. phone home. You know, we, we, we don't have a reason to believe that. 
So I'm sorry. You and I have watched so many alien movies and much as I would like to go hunting a predator, it's just not going to happen. So we, we have better things to think about because even, okay, you know what? Let's say little green men show up in our lifetime. What's the most important thing we can do? Well, get our souls right with God. Well, let's say little green men do not show up in our lifetime. What's the most important thing we can do? We'll get ourselves right with God. So either way, this is a moot question that should not shake our faith. If anything, whatever the answer is, it proves the majesty of the Lord our God. If aliens don't exist, humans still possess a primacy over all of creation and that our actions have eternal consequence. If aliens do exist, humans still possess a place of primacy in all of creation and our actions have eternal consequence. Yeah, because Jesus came down as a human being. Mm -hmm. He did not come down as a Martian. All right, so let's move on to our next question. The Bible seems to contain contradictions. For example, Matthew 27 has Judas dying by hanging himself. And Acts 1 has him buying a potter's field and falling headlong in it with his intestines bursting out. Accounts of the resurrection are even more difficult to reconcile one to the other. Does the Bible contain contradictions? If your answer is no, isn't the only way to reconcile accounts by forcing different accounts into rec reconciliation in unnatural ways? In other ways that we could never think credible if someone else tried them in another context. And if your answer is yes, what does that mean for the Bible's authority? Okay, that's a lot. Uh, all right. Contradictions in the Bible. Uh, this, this young man, you know, that's a good question. That's a great question. But this young man is not the first person in history to bring up this question. Uh, the new atheist people like Richard Dawkins and, uh, oh, what's the guy's name again? Sam Harris. All of these people have brought up these issues. There are apparently 194 historical and mathematical inconsistencies within the New Testament, if I'm remembering correctly. Uh, and, you know, people are always trying to invent new ones. And the truth is, I've been studying scripture since I was 20 years old. I'm 33, so 13 years now. I have not found a single true contradiction. So that means that my answer is in stark contradiction huh? with this person's question. Does the Bible really have contradictions? The answer is an absolute no, but let's talk about what that means. See, the authors of sacred scripture especially the Hebrews in the Hebrew language, going into Greek, but written by Hebrew people and, you know, early Christian people, they didn't have a desire to convey historical and mathematically accurate truths. They wanted to convey a religious reality, a reality of the faith that far transcends the historical and the mathematical. And I'll prove to you what that means. Let's say you and I go walking in uh, a graveyard, yeah? And, you know, if you and I are walking, we're going to walk by a series of tombstones. And let's say we see person A died in this year, person B died. In and there's a limit to how many tombstones you and I can see in one day. So let's say we saw 10 people's tombstones. And then when we go off and we say, you know, we went to, let's say, the St. Patrick tombstone. We went to the St. Patrick graveyard. And in the graveyard, we saw 10 tombstones, person A all the way to person A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J. Yeah, J, person J. And, and you know, we saw that. 
And that would be our narrative. This was what we saw in that graveyard. Supposing another person, now I'm borrowing this analogy actually from Fulton Sheen in, in his work, Your Life is Worth Living. I'd recommend people look it up. Supposing another person hopped on a plane and flew and that plane happened to fly over that graveyard. All of a sudden, that person would account, you know, I was over the St. Patrick graveyard and I saw 250 tombstones. Are these conflicting narratives? By this person's standards, yes, because you and I only saw 10, but the, the person on the plane saw 250. So which is true? Well, they both are. The question here is a matter of perspective. You see, the Holy Spirit worked. It's called the mystery of dual authorship. The Holy Spirit worked with the capacities of each individual author. So that's why when Luke writes, when he uses words for like needle and stuff, because he was a medical doctor, he uses the word for surgical needle. When he talks about knife, he, he uses the word for a surgical knife. Uh, but when Matthew writes, because he was a tax collector, he was the only one who would have dealt in uh, large amounts of money. So he, he talks about large amounts of money in the parable of the coins. Uh, he talks about a denarius, uh, which typically most people, you know, wouldn't deal with it, with, with those, uh, deal with those in, in, uh, at, the, at that time because of the sheer height of the denomination of the currency. When Mark writes, Mark is Peter's young disciple. And he's listening to Peter share this. And, you know, Peter is the first pope, so he probably didn't have a lot of time to narrate this. He wanted to go out and preach the gospel. So Mark writes very hurriedly because Peter's narrating this to him quickly. When John writes, John's writing to people who've been Christians for a while. He is not under threat of death anymore because they tried to kill him and he wouldn't die. You know, so when he writes, he pens it in such a way, well, he probably wrote before his martyrdom, but he pens it in such a way that he spent time thinking about Christianity. And that's why John is called high Christology. He is exposed to the philosophies of the time. And that's why the beginning, the Johannian prologue is in the beginning was the logos, which is a philosophical term that is now baptized into calling Christ the word, the word of God, the logos of God. Are all of these contradictory? Well, by this standard, yes. But when you think about the biblical standard, there's still one consistent author, and that author is the Holy Spirit. This is called the mystery of dual authorship. In that regard, we need to understand that when we read sacred scripture, yes, we can glean historical accurate, historically accurate facts. Yes, we can glean mathematically accurate facts, but that's not the purpose of the writing. That would be like you and me reading the Lord of the Rings, hoping that we will find historically accurate, humanly accurate facts in and, and the Lord of the Rings is, is, is myth. You know, it, it, it's it's completely uh, it, it's not completely, but it's slightly divorced from reality. So it's a bad analogy. But the fact of the matter is when we read sacred scripture, we should not be looking for numerical accuracies. Why? Because for the early Hebrews, for the Jews, numbers had symbolic meanings. So that's why they chose the number seven for the creation of the world. Not because they're trying to say God created in seven 24-hour days, because the Hebrew word for yom can mean a 24-hour day, but it can also mean a long season of time taking up to hundreds of thousands, even millions of years. We are meant to glean from that that God took his time with creation. And on the seventh day, when it says God rested, he shavah, he hallowed the day. So when we read sacred scripture, the answer is an absolute no. The better explanation is there's this principle in philosophy called the principle of non-contradiction, which is simply this. Take a look at all of these things that you deem inconsistent. Do they actually say that 
because this is right, that's wrong. Because this is right, that's wrong. Because this is right, that's wrong. No, actually, if you piece it all together, you get a fuller picture of what's happening with the crucifixion, with the resurrection, and with the life of Jesus Christ. That's why most people who make movies on the life of Christ look to all four Gospels for narratives. So uh, that, that's a very, very good uh approach to use, you know, using the principle of non-contradiction. But from there, from there, uh, when you talk about, say, you know, like Judas, right, Acts of the Apostles, the church actually has attempted to answer this, and there are multiple ways to do it. See, when Luke is writing the Acts of the Apostles, he's saying, you know, Peter was talking about Judas fell into a field and his bowels gushed out. This is in Acts chapter 6, verse 7. But when the Gospels in Matthew especially talks about what Judas did, and Judas went and hanged himself, what they are trying to say is potentially two things happen. See, cursed is he who hangs upon a tree. On the day Jesus was hanging upon the tree of life, Judas chose to hang from the tree of death. They who turn themselves from the Lord will hang from the tree of death and inherit the curse of the tree of death. And yet Jesus hung from the tree of life. He inherited the curse of the tree of life, which is death, but he used that to bring about the new fruit of life which is the Eucharist for all of us. So the church fathers have attempted to reconcile this. Number two, very practical. Think about it. When someone hangs themselves, Jews are not allowed to touch that body because they would be deemed cursed. It would be deemed unclean and they cannot go into worship. It was the weekend of the Passover. No one was going to take Judas's body down. What happens when a body has been hanging for three days from a, th from a tree? It rots. Exactly. Decay. And then when that decay happens, the body cannot hang for long. So what happens? It falls off the tree into that field. Maybe. Exactly. And the bowels gush out. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, none of this is contradictory. If anything, you know, all it needs is a little imagination and a little, little reading of history. Because the Jews were not going to go dirty themselves with Judas. Judas's family couldn't even touch his body. And maybe they didn't even know he hung himself until days later at which point they probably went and re retrieved his field, or maybe not. The potter's field was where he hung himself, uh, so maybe he was just left to rot there. We, we actually don't have certitude of what happened to him after that. But it's entirely plausible to believe that he hung himself, and then, you know, he fell and his bowels gushed out. And it was a, a very great testimony to turn your life away from the Lord, and all that is evil from you will spew out of you, you know, that kind of a deal. So, no. Uh, there are no inconsistencies in the Bible. It is a matter of understanding that there is one consistent covenant narrative. And we are able to glean a fuller picture if we're not looking for mathematical and historical inaccuracies. So uh, I'm going to recommend the reading of documents like, you know, Leo XIII wrote the document Providentissimus Deus, uh, published in 1883. Uh, we can also look at Benedict XV. Uh, he published Spiritus Paracletus, you know, the, the Paraclete Spirit. Uh, published in 1920. These documents handle the, there's another one, just, uh, there's another document, and uh, I think Dave it's, Verbum? well, Dave Verbum and Verbum Domini are great, but they don't, and, and you know, they're they great uh, in order to look at sacred scripture, but uh, I'm talking about principles of interpretation, like Divino Aflante uh, Spiritu, you know, published by Pius XII in uh, 1943. Uh, you know, look up these documents because they, they present to us the principles of interpretation of sacred scripture. When, when you view sacred scripture through the right lens, there are zero contradictions. And that's, that's it in all seriousness. People who go looking for contradictions will find it. People who go looking for faith and certitude will find it. 
that's why Pope Benedict the Sixteenth, during his papacy, he employed the certain thing called a hermeneutic, hermeneutic of faith and hermeneutic of continuity, which is read all the sacred scripture as if it is one book of the Lord, interpreted by the Church from the beginning of its history. Read all of sacred scripture through the lens of the revelation of faith, and you will find not contradictions, but honestly, truths for salvation. All right, thank you, Marcus, for that answer. And uh, we have already reached the half an hour mark towards our show. Um, maybe we can take another one or two questions, if that's fine with you. Yeah, let's uh, let's do one question. Then I really do have to go today. Okay, sure. Um, so let's get into it. If God is outside of time, is Jesus always suffering His passion? Ah, okay. Uh, the quick answer to that is no. That's a brilliant question. No, the quick answer to that is no, because we need to ask ourselves, what does suffering mean? Well, suffering is a kind of change because humans are not suffering all the time. There are times when we are like you and I are okay right now, but suffering means that we have a pr propensity for change. And then we will change back to a period of non-suffering after suffering happens for a period of time. When we talk about God being outside of time, we're talking about the divine nature. And the divine nature of God is completely immutable. That means there's no capacity for change. So when God is outside of time, God is unchanging. So God is not eternally suffering. The suffering of Jesus Christ was something that happened to his human nature at a specific point in history on 33 AD on Good Friday. And that is done and over with. And the book of Hebrews is very clear that it is once for all. So, the divine nature is united to that event for eternity. And the divine nature unites us to that event for eternity. But we are not re-crucifying Christ. Christ is not eternally suffering. Because why? Christ is now eternally glorified. His human nature has also received that glory. And now, from, from now until the end of time, and I take, I take my students through the three levels of theological time. You've got temporality. I coined the term, it's temporal time, which means something has a beginning, but will also have an end. Anything that is below human beings and the hierarchy of being like animals, plants, and immaterial, immaterial creatures, material creatures like uh, rocks and whatnot, all of these things will end one day. Then you've got eternity. Eternity is a term coined by St. Thomas Aquinas, which says that beings with an intellectual nature, so humans and angels, have a beginning but won't have an end. And then eternity is no beginning, no end, and only God is in eternity. Christ's human nature is eternal. Christ's divine nature is eternal. So because of that, his suffering has ended, but he will forever remain outside of time. Yeah, that's, right. that's truncating that whole thing into a nutshell. Wonderful. Yeah. Thank you, Marcus. And that's the end of our session for today. I know it's a bit short, but, you know, obligations. So um, with that, we just want to thank all the young men and women that has uh, submitted their questions to us. And we will keep all of you in, in your prayers. And we ask you listeners to keep all of them in, their, in your prayers as well. So um, we will attach the link to our form. So if you have any questions about um, scripture, apologetics, theology, church teachings, evangelization, any questions for that matter that, you're, that you are battling with, that you want to know answers to, the link to our forms is in the description. Fill in your questions and we will be glad to address them at our next session. And um, this is St. Peter's Institute 
for scripture evangelization where we defend the Catholic faith with truth and charity. And before we end, Marcus, would you want to lead us in a closing prayer? Sure. Let's uh, let's do the glory be as we give all glory to the Trinity. Gloria Patri et Fili et Spiritus Sancti, sicut erat in principium et nunc et semper et in saecula saeculorum. Amen. In nomine Patris et Fili et Spiritus Sancti. Thank you everyone for listening. And once again, if you have questions, the link will be in the description. Keep us all in your prayers as we continue to produce more of this podcast. My name is Royston Peter and my brother, Marcus Peter. And together with St. Peter's Institute, have a blessed day. May God bless you and keep you.